are taking notes like I like to do and you're putting down a title, I don't know if it's a title as much as it's a question. If you got space for it, you can just put in, is your joy complete? Is your joy complete? If you got a Bible, I hope you got a Bible. Maybe you're swiping there on the phone. You can turn to Luke chapter 1 because that's where we're going to park it tonight. But first and foremost, can I just say from the pulpit, Merry Christmas. The, the trees are up. The lights are up. The tree finally got up in our house this week, right? The, 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 all the, the diehard jokes are back. Uh, <laughs> every Christmas, those come back around. And, and no matter where you stand on when you should start listening to Christmas music, you probably fired those playlists up at this point. Like in, in my childhood, by now at, at the White House, as we called it, uh, the, the Mannheim Steamroller, remember them? The, uh, uh, who else? Oh, Handel's Messiah. Uh, I think Amy Grant had like a Christmas album. All those compact discs. You didn't have like Spotify playlists. You had to get out compact discs, dust them off because they've been sitting around for a year and put them in our nice six disc CD changer and hit shuffle, right? But no matter what Christmas playlist you're firing up, who has like a favorite Christmas song? Uh, maybe it's one that like inspires you to worship or just gets you in the Christmas spirit like that. Anybody got a favorite? Avery. This Christmas. Okay, okay. Somebody in the back. Oh, Holy Night. Anybody else? Oh, my bad. Alan. Carol of the Bells. Okay, okay. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And one more in the back. Silent Night. Another good one. I, I love Christmas carols because they're refreshingly, like, theologically rich. Just some of the lyrics in these Christmas carols are like, oh, Selah, let me, let me think about that. But I know my favorite Christmas carol is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And maybe that comes off as, as I don't know, melancholy because it's written from the perspective of people in exile looking forward to the promised Messiah. Right? It's written by uh, the perspective of Israel in exile waiting for the promised Messiah, promised by prophets like Isaiah. Right? The, the, it's written by people who are, are living in the valley, right? And, and we may not be in exile per se, but the longer you live in this life, the more you realize this ain't it. <laughs> this isn't home. We're pilgrims passing through, and, and, and home is with God, and home is with Jesus. And O come, O come, Emmanuel is the cry of those that Isaiah writes about in Isaiah chapter 9, that have been walking in darkness and needed to see the great light of hope of the coming Messiah breaking through. But it's Isaiah chapter 7 where we see Emmanuel introduced in scripture, this word, this name, this idea, a prophecy centuries before Jesus pointing to a virgin birth. And really, Isaiah is an odd place to find prophecies about Christmas because Isaiah isn't Christmassy in the idea of like, come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. I don't know if you've read Isaiah, but it's, it's a prophetic voice to a nation that was a good bit faithless, joyless, and on the cusp of judgment. And I kind of take that as good news, that Christmas isn't just for the faithful, the joyful, and the triumphant, and all the people that got their life together. Y'all real quiet, so you must have your life together. So I'll just preach to myself, right? It's not just for the faithful, joyful, and triumphant. It's for the broken. It's for the, those that need grace, those that are present in a mess, maybe wrestle with some things like anxiety. And it's for those that would cry out to God, meet me here and bring healing, bring comfort, bring deliverance, bring freedom. And the beautiful thing is the word and name Emmanuel means God with us. It means God hears our cry 
and is present with us. Whether it was a banner year or a barren year, whether it felt like you were on the mountaintop or in the valley, triumphant or defeated, blessed or a mess, Jesus came and died so we could experience God in any season. It's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Other religions say, come and I'll show you how to get to God or get to peace or achieve these things. Christianity says, no, I'll show you the God who came to us, died for us so that we could come to him perpetually. Isaiah 7's prophecy of Emmanuel and this virgin giving birth also prophetically points to Luke chapter 1 and its fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. And here in Luke 1, when the virgin Mary is told she will miraculously bear Jesus, it begs the obvious question that she asks, okay, how? (laughs) And the angel points to the fact that God can do all things, nothing is impossible for him, but then he also points to her relative Elizabeth, who was uh, called barren in her old age. People were like, oh yeah, she can't have kids. But he says, uh-uh, she's carrying a child right now. That's another sermon for another time. What in your life are you pointing to and saying, well, that's barren. There ain't no hope for that where God's saying, no, that's fertile ground for me to move. I don't know what your Elizabeth is this year, but again, that's another sermon, another time. Somebody needed to hear that. But upon hearing about Elizabeth's pregnancy and that all things are possible with God, Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And we see here that Mary, having heard that she would be with child, that the Messiah was coming to be with his people, she runs off to be with Elizabeth. And we see this in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 47, that I want to read. It says in Luke 1, verse 39, that at that time Mary got ready and hurried to a hill, a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And she steps into this song that famously is called the Magnificat, but tonight I want to step into prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christmas. I know some of these passages for some of us are are passages we've heard dozens of times at this point on Christmas, but God, I pray that you would reawaken our hearts and our minds to the the present reality of what these passages mean to us. God, the present reality of, of who we are in you and how you see us and the truth you want to speak to us tonight. Holy Spirit, Get rid of any complacency in this place and awaken us again to the, just the wonder and the awe of your coming in Jesus Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. But we see here, Mary is coming off this personal encounter with God. And she receives a word of God for her life. And, and I don't know, I'm kind of introverted. I could see that she might have uh, uh, stepped into a moment of self-reflection maybe spark some kind of retreat, but her seeming immediate impulse is to run to be with somebody as she steps into God's unfolding will in her life. Why? I think we can make some guesses to be with somebody that could relate to her situation as Elizabeth was also uh, experiencing a unlikely, dare say, miraculous pregnancy, right? To reinforce her own faith, to receive and give encouragement. But it's the outcome of this encounter that I want to consider tonight. Because at the sound of Mary's voice, first we see Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, 
And she prophesies in a loud, uh, other translations say glad or exuberant voice. And then secondly, we see in her womb, the boy in her womb, John the Baptist, leaps for joy at the sound of Mary's voice. And then in response to all this, Mary responds with verse 46 of, the, of her explosion of praise, saying, how my spirit rejoices, right? demonstrates joy. Their fruit of coming together is resounding joy and demonstrating joy and rejoicing. It's a point of emphasis that we should recognize in this text. And I remember reading this a few weeks ago, and as I was just reading it, my mind drifted to another John in the New Testament. Not John the Baptist, but John the disciple, who would go on to write five books of the New Testament, the Gospel John, and then his three letters to the church, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. And at the end of 2nd John, this brief letter, just a couple pages, he writes to this church that he had planted in Ephesus. He says, I have much more to say to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink. For I hope to visit you soon and talk with you face to face. Then our joy will be complete. See, John, like Mary, wants to hop on a donkey with a full tank of gas and go see these people and be with them. And he says, then, then, right, when we're face to face, in your presence, in community, then our joy will be complete, complete. There's a lot of singing and talking about joy in Christmas, especially Christmas carols. You think about joyful all ye nations rise, right? Mountains echo back these joyous strains. And even O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, in its somber tones, cries out at the end, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel will come to you, O Israel. But imagine if they sang about like a joy that wasn't quite complete, like incomplete joy to the world. Repeat incomplete joy, repeat incomplete joy, repeat, repeat incomplete joy. Doesn't have the same vibe, doesn't hit well, it's terrible. Because if you have the choice, you don't want a gift that's incomplete. Like, reflect on your childhood. I don't know, maybe it's just me. There was nothing as frustrating or tilting as a child when you would get a gift you've been waiting months for, right? I remember I got the tournament table once, the one you could play uh, not quite air hockey because there's no air pool and ping pong on at the same time. It was like missing a screw in the box. And so this gift that I had been waiting for, like, couldn't be set up for me to use immediately. Like, just don't give it to me if it's like that, right? Or maybe you get a present and there's no batteries and you can't play with it because you don't have the whatever size battery, the giant gargantuan battery to put in there. It's like an incomplete gift because I can't, I can't even use it. See, God doesn't give us just a bit of joy, a measure of joy, a portion of what we need. No, God gives it fully. David says in Psalm 16 that in God's presence is fullness of joy. In John 15, Jesus says to the disciples that your joy will be complete if you keep the command to love one another. And John writes this, and no doubt this is what he had in mind when he wrote his letters to the church and spoke of joy's completion in their love for one another. In 1 John, he talks again and again about how you can't love God if you don't love your brother and sister that's right around you. Like, we're called to love one another. He hits on it again and again, and he, he also writes that beautiful verse in 1 John 4 that we're going to be obedient to this, right? We're going to love each other, but Jesus loved us first. As a result of all this talk of loving one another, he goes down in church history as the apostle of love. Love that title. In 1 John 1, 4, he, said, he writes, he says, we write this to make our joy complete. But you know what's interesting to me that as you read his subsequent letters, in his follow-up letters, he stops short of saying that the joy is completing in the writing. 
Why? Because he's longing for more than just writing to them. He wants the renewal of fellowship. And he notably infers in 2 John 1, 12, that this complete joy is not found in a vacuum. It's found in community. Now, can you have joy in seclusion? Absolutely. Joy is a fruit of the spirit, not a fruit of your circumstance, right? It's not a fruit of what you're walking in now. No, joy is a fruit of the spirit, but joy to the full. This word complete here in the Greek speaks to filled to the brim. And John implies that joy fills our cup when we make room, not just for the presence of God, but for the presence of his people in our lives. And not just anybody, right? The church. You can make room for all kinds of people in your life and it'll bring you joy. John is saying a fully unboxed, complete, fully operational joy in John's mind is not found in isolation, but in coming together with the family of faith. Now, again, mind you, this isn't the same John that was in Elizabeth's womb that was related to Mary in that moment. But in a way, they were both Mary's family. Again, John writes the gospel of John, and it's in that gospel we see this account of John and Mary at the cross where There was, if you could call it, an informal adoption. Jesus says in but a few words, he says to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he says to John, here is your mother. And it says from there that John took her into his home. Taken literally, they became an adoptive family. I mean, in our context, that's a pretty informal adoption process there. Like, I wish that was the adoption process that Steph and I walked into almost 10 years ago now. Right? We started an international adoption process to adopt Raj, who's been with us for almost five years. It's crazy. But that international adoption process can be a doozy. And part of it's understandable. They want to properly vet you and get background because you don't give a vulnerable child to just anybody. It's understandable. But my favorite part was when you'd have to update your fingerprints. Like that, that doesn't change. You're trying to like make sure I'm not some like shape-shifting mutant to give me a child. Because, but nevertheless, you had to update update your fingerprints. But again, they want to properly vet you, but they also want to properly prepare you. I'm no good at math, and I've forgotten probably more mathematical formulas than I ever knew at this point. (laughs) But one I'll never forget, it was in uh, basically an orientation class for adoption, where they said for every year a child spends in an orphanage, you can subtract about four to six months of development off their life. Not just physical development, like height or weight, walking, using the potty, etc., but psychological development, like the ability to communicate, the ability to relate, the ability to give and receive affection appropriately. And it's not some universal equation, right? But it's an appropriate framework they use to set expectations. It's also not a hard diagnosis on a child's life, but praise God, right? He made the, the, the brain malleable, it can heal. But without a family, living as an orphan, There's what's called a cycle of unmet needs, a cycle of unmet needs where needs aren't met. And again, not just nutritional and physical ones, but relational ones. Connections aren't made in the brain. Like literal connections in the brain aren't made. So growth is hindered. But growth can be found when the cycle of unmet needs is broken. And slowly those needs are met until that becomes a cycle, a cycle of experiencing love and met needs. And things can change. And as a result, the brain and the body can slowly begin to heal and slowly begin to develop. And why do I share all this? Because just like children need families to grow, and we should expect hindered development outside of those connections, we aren't called to live spiritually orphaned, but physically present in a family of faith. And without it, 
we should expect that our spiritual development will be hindered. Without a life immersed in the family of faith, there's cycles of unmet needs spiritually in our lives. Without a life done in the family of faith, as John would say, face-to-face in fellowship, our joy lacks completion. In this Christmas season, so full of references to joy, let me just give you two steps to a fuller joy, more complete joy this Christmas. And the first is break the curve. Break the curve. Look, family can be messy. Anybody who grew up with siblings can attest. I was one of four. Two girls, I was one of the two boys, I was a middle child. It was beautiful chaos. And the family of faith also isn't cookie cutter and easy peasy, especially when your family is as diverse and different as Galatians 3.28 implies, right? The implications of that verse for us, where he says there's not Jew or Gentile. For us, not black or white or any, anything in between, right? Male or female, Democrat or Republican, because we're all made one in Jesus Christ. And that ain't easy. That difficulty is why Christina Cleveland wrote the, the great book, Disunity in Christ. It's a great book. Whoever I lent that out to, probably during the election cycle, give it back. <laughs> Disunity in Christ by Christina Cleveland. In it, she gives an account of, of another man as they were on a church trip in the same bus. Right, so they're on some long trip. There's a bunch of people in this bus, but he kind of rubbed it the wrong way. Not that there was anything inherently wrong with him, but his personality, his style, his perspectives left her looking for ways to distance herself from him on the trip. And then she had this thought, I'm going to be spending eternity with this guy. Anybody ever been there? But then she has this this comforting thought. She said, it's okay. Heaven is going to be a big, big place. (laughs) This is part of the introduction to the book that she fleshes out. But when I read that, the idea of heaven being so expansive and big that you could escape from people during an interaction on a bus, my mind went to another book that I had read, honestly, in that same season called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's his metaphoric dream of heaven and hell, and in the introduction, he begs his readers to remember, hey, this, this this is fantasy. But it is fascinating, and it's profound, because the narrator resides in this ever growing expanse of hell, but takes this bus available for all who wanted a day excursion to what ends up being like the outskirts of heaven, outside the gates. And in The Great Divorce, the boundaries of hell expand like the universe, they're ever increasing, Like Christina Cleveland's momentary picture of heaven, hell is a big, big place. It takes centuries to get from one side to the other. And the reason is because when people take up residence in hell, they want to get as far away from each other as possible. Hell in the great divorce is you in isolation, consumed by self into eternity. Again, it's it's extra biblical, but it's a powerful picture. And those in hell chose it as they're consumed by self, and it just continues into the next life. But when the the main character has rode the bus from hell to the outskirts of heaven, he asks an angel, well, where is this, like, where is heaven in in relation to hell? And the angel lifts up a blade of of grass as if it's something out of, like, Horton hears a who and says, this is where you came in. While hell seemed ever expansive, the reality was it was oh so tiny. And the lesson that C.S. Lewis is handing out here is that a life consumed by self is a small life. A life fueled by me, myself, and I is a life lived small. Hell isn't so much fire and brimstone in the great divorce as it's portrayed as dull, gray, and void of joy. You go back from current authors, though, like Christina Cleveland to former authors like C.S. Lewis. You go back even further to St. Augustine. He once spoke of life as incurvatus in se. It's Latin for curved in on itself. This is impulse of our flesh 
to be curved in on itself. Rather than outward to God, rather than outward to others, rather than outward to the family of faith, only the needs within us. No room for God or others' concerns. David writes about this in Psalm 10 when he says that the prideful don't seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for him. Again, to C.S. Lewis, those who find no space for God in this life willingly find a space in hell in the next. It's like his famous quote, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. And in Curvitus and Say, this concept of being curved in on myself reminds me that I need to break the curve in me to live for myself absent of God or absent of others. Now back from Christina Cleveland, C.S. Lewis, and Augustine to our passage in 2 John 1. Let's tie it in. In his essence, he's saying, I don't want to lean on technology to maintain community and relationship with you. I want to do it face-to-face. I want renewal of fellowship. See, ink and papyrus, for lack of a better term, in his day, that was his technology for communication. Didn't have texts, didn't have emails. I mean, I don't even know if this qualifies as snail mail (laughs) because it was going to be slow for that letter to get there. But that's how you could maintain relationship when you weren't face to face. And yet John says, I don't want to lean into it too much. You see, I tell you tonight, technological innovations are invitations to take a fresh look at our beliefs and how we're walking them out. Technological innovations, they're invitations for us to look at, man, what do I believe and how does it apply to, say, (laughs) my phone, uh, social media, all these things. And we are swimming in innovations these days. I was listening to a podcast in my car off like an Alexa auto thing Steph bought me where I just talk to it and it pulls up podcasts, right? Like that's technology. And I was listening to a podcast uh, where, uh, let me get this right, Professor Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology. Don't ask me what that is. Sounds important, though. David Nutt, he had written a book called Drink. I guess you could call it Drink because it was with a question mark. The reason he wrote the book is because two-thirds of the world last year has had a drink of some form, and only a small percentage of people actually know, like, what is this doing in my body to make me feel this way, in my liver, in my brain? And so he just writes a book about the pros and cons, the for better or worse, of alcohol. And it was fascinating because on the, on the better side, alcohol in the early stages and in moderation, it augments. It gives extra oomph to the GABA in your brain. They're calming neurotransmitters in the brain. That's why alcohol causes uh, less inhibition, less social anxiety. You're more calmed and relaxed. And as he's talking about this, he said something that struck me. He said social inhibition is one of the cardinal features of humanity. He explained that rightfully so, we're wired to be suspicious of other people in social interactions because, like, in human history, somebody might walk up in your life, be with another tribe that has other interests that wants what you have, right? So we're wired to be suspicious and socially inhibited. I mean, in, in other terms, you, you, the amygdala of our brain is wired to be suspicious of those that don't look like us, right? It's where, like, racism is rooted, like, in the brain, right, because of this impulse to, to fear what's different. Be suspicious. Be socially inhibited. And alcohol helps curb this tendency to be inhibited in public, which is why so many people drink. And I share that because social media has a lot of parallels. A whole lot of the world is on social media. And only a small percentage of people, I think, truly understand what it is doing to us. And for one, it certainly helps punt our social inhibitions. Like, people will say things on a dating app to somebody that they would never say face-to-face because they'd be, like, consumed by butterflies. But when you're online, like, those, those inhibitions aren't there. 
People will say things in comment sections on Facebook or replies on Twitter that are so antagonistic and, 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 and like want to escalate the situation. You would never say that to somebody's face. It used to be before social media, when you said those things, you had to put everything down and throw hands. <laughs> but now you just hit enter and keep scrolling. And there's this, we've become keyboard warriors in, in tribalism and culture wars. But you know what? There's also beautiful parts of social media. Right, like a technological innovation that gave us a crucial invitation as a church as COVID hit was like live streaming, not just to Facebook or YouTube, but like the platform. It was developed by Craig Rochelle and Life Church, and they built that thing because they got the resources, and then they gave it out for free for just churches to use. It's incredible. It's awesome. Well, what's funny is we look back now and we can laugh because we're Saturday night church. So that first night that the whole nation was using it, we streamed on Saturday night. It was beautiful. It worked perfectly. Then Sunday morning, like the entire nation and most of the world is like on this thing and it crashed, right? Like towards the beginning of Sunday services. So we didn't get any of that. Praise the Lord for Saturday church. But they adjusted it. They adapted it. And it's been a beautiful tool. You can request prayer on there. You can uh, give. You can fill out an online connect card. You can talk to hosts. Shout out to our hosts tonight. Matter of fact, shout out to Sammy and Chandler that are putting together the production over on the other side of the church right now. And it's awesome because you don't just stream to that. We stream to Facebook. We stream to YouTube. By the end of this year, the number of views on YouTube will eclipse 10,000 people that have viewed. And there are viewers that would go on to visit. And there are visitors that came on to become members, right, at City Life through these platforms. So, yeah, it is cool. But like other technological innovations, live streaming is another one that invites us to look at our beliefs and adapt our habits. Because like all of social media, right, online church gives us the ability to be connected Technology has allowed us to be more connected than other ever, and yet still isolated. And how is this? Again, social inhibition is one of our cardinal features. So we long to escape the, the risky, right, honest, awkward, authentic, embodied human interactions. And technology allows us to largely avoid risky human interactions. They're like tiny little shields, man. You're in public, you want to talk to somebody, you just pull it out. You pretend, pretend you're on a call, pretend you're like reading something, you just pull it out, it's like a shield, blocks people out. Like, it's like a do not disturb sign that's in my hand, right? You can avoid risky human interaction. So we've, because of this, slowly been conditioned, whether we realize it or not, to chalk up those things that are awkward, those conversations that are challenging, those relationships that are uncomfortable as something to be resisted rather than uh, something that can grow us, something that can build character in us, something that God can use to form the character of Christ in us. See, your comfort zone is, is a danger zone because God is going to continually call you out of it. But technology, again, it lures us into connection that's without embodied community. There are many consequences, right? Like, like online, you're going to miss out on so much diversity because there are pieces of humanity that aren't even present online, from the elderly to the poor and alike. You can live with exaggerated blind spots and unaddressed weaknesses as we avoid anything but likes and affirmation. We become quick to speak and slow to listen rather than reflective. We become reactive. But the chief consequence tonight is if, if we aren't careful, right, there's pros and cons, blessings and curses. If we aren't careful, though, Technology is fertilizer on what C.S. Lewis would say is growing in all of us and needs to be nipped in the bud. If we aren't careful, it can ex exacerbate what Augustine diagnoses, this inward curve towards self and our comfort above all else. See, Jesus broke this curve. 
and we're going to follow him, we have to do the same. If we find it too messy or risky or painful to be present and engaged with embodied and, yes, sometimes messy flesh and blood people, what does that say about us as followers of Christ? The God who took on flesh to save messy people. You know, Pastor Fred, to double down on what he said last weekend as we launched into this series, Jesus fit into humanity. And you and I can certainly fit into the lifestyle he wants us to have, a lifestyle defined by incarnational living, being tangibly present for one another in the family of God. And I'll echo the same caveats that he hit on. In this season, there are certainly people who have been staying away for good reason. In this season of COVID, in this pandemic, there are people that have stayed away for good reasons. Those with health concerns or new babies or the elderly and immunocompromised. But there are others who need to accept this invitation to take a look at their beliefs and their current habits and practices. Because the incarnation of Jesus, right, Emmanuel, as we've been talking about, God with us, it's not just God's plan for salvation, it's God's example for us. He expects us to be tangibly present with other believers. And social inhibition may be one of the cardinal features of humanity, but community is a cardinal feature of divinity. The Trinity is three in one, community and relationship into eternity. And again, Jesus stepped down to take on flesh and blood and be with us. And the first step he gives us to follow him is deny yourself. Break the curve. But the second step tonight I want to look at as we focus on having a more complete joy is not just break the curve, but embrace the church. You know, John wrote these letters in his gospel, in the third chapter, towards the beginning of his gospel, we see the conversation with Nicodemus, pivotal conversation, where Jesus says we all must be born again. It's one of the most pivotal and and noteworthy and famous conversations in the gospels and in all of history. And we read in John chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus says, don't be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. Now, in that original language, that first you It's singular because Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's not talking to a crowd. But that second you is plural because he's not just saying, oh, you Nicodemus need to be born again. All of humanity needs to be born again. And I find it striking that in one of Jesus's most pivotal statements that changed all of history, brings us salvation, his very purpose for coming. There's plural words in there that look singular. Right. And, And it can be tricky. Because if we're not careful, our, in our individualistic culture, right, Christianity can become the singular religion of the individual. And if we're not careful, our Bible can lose context and fuel this. Paul says to Timothy, look, rightly handle the word of God. Correctly handle the word of God, which means you can do it incorrectly. And one way I believe we do this is we read it through individualistic lenses. Because there are 4,700, 4,700 verses in the Bible That include a you, which in the original language is plural, right? 2,700 Hebrew, 2,000 Greek, where the word for you is plural and it's translated in our Bibles you. So we don't really know, right? I think a lot of times we read it as individual. And see, I was raised north of the Mason-Dixie, so I don't say y'all that much. My parents, you know, I was born in Massachusetts, New York till I was six, up upper nova dmv whatever you want to call it so i don't say y'all that was that's new to my vocabulary i might say it but it's new but uh <laughs> i've never even been to texas but i can still endorse a, a bible that was developed in 2013 which is simply called the texas bible because every one of those 4700 u's that's plural is y'all 
So you're reading your Bible and there's y'alls throughout, which some of y'all might be like, that's goofy, but man, we need the reminder, right? That so much of the Bible is written to a body of believers, living an embodied, holistic community of local believers, also known as the church. John wrote his letters to such. Likewise, when Paul writes and he says that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion, it's not singular. It's plural. Are there truths in that scripture that you should apply to yourself? Absolutely. But he's writing to a church. When he says work out your salvation, it's not singular. It's plural. Why? Because he's writing to a church. And that growth is going to take shoulder to shoulder, face to face, church community. In our individualistic culture, we like to think that as growth leads to independence, which it does, that that means we decrease our dependence. The whole concept of interdependence, where two or more things are dependent on each other, it just becomes absent. My point is that growth isn't just uprooting dependence from your life. Growth often is the fruit of dependence and interdependence on one another. Living alone and independent, spiritually orphaned from the family of faith, it'll stunt your growth. You live with cycles of unmet needs, so break that cycle. Embrace the church again. Not just a digitized experience, although it's beautiful what's happening online. People have been saved online. The church is being built online. But we have to have flesh and blood, face-to-face conversations, interactions, accountability, encouragement, where joy is made complete. If I could have the, the worship team come up, let me hammer two points before I close. First, let me double down. Again, there are people that aren't here tonight for a good reason. This isn't about you. This isn't for you. But secondly, I don't dream when I say we need to be connected to a church, a family of faith, that this is the church for everybody. There might be somebody checking us out online right now, as many people have, and ultimately this might not be the church for you. But I can say in full confidence that God has a church for you. Look, look, this church isn't the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. I simply hope you find a church where you can worship Jesus and make him known. But if you're holding out because you're waiting for, like, the ideal church with ideal people, that is, is perfect in, in every aspect for you. You ain't going to find it. <laughs> and let me just echo the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said that those who love their dream of a Christian community, more than they love the Christian community itself, become destroyers of that Christian community. You might say, well, that's, that's kind of harsh. It's kind of harsh. Let's go to the Bible then. Proverbs 18.1 says, those who care only for themselves spit on the common good. See, Solomon in all his wisdom knew that in and of ourselves, we're curved inward toward ourselves. But God calls us to break from our social inhibitions and our inward curve and care for community, care for others, and care for our relationship with him. And we know that in the greater context of Scripture, it shows us that it's not just any community. It's the body of believers. It's the family of faith. It's the local church, a community of not always ideal but real people. And thank God you don't have to be ideal or or perfect to go to church. Otherwise, they wouldn't let me in. I wouldn't just not be preaching. I wouldn't be here. Because <laughs> if, if the church had to be full of people who got their stuff together before coming in, every church would be empty. See, Christmas isn't just for the faithful, the joyful, the triumphant, as much as it is, it is for those people that are struggling with faithless, joyless, and, and defeated seasons. That needs saving. And God loves, as we see at Christmas, to meet us there. There was an Italian author, Carlo Corretto. I think I first read this book in like a Brennan Manning book probably like 15 years ago, but I've never forgot it. Corretto says, God loves what is not yet, what is still to come to birth. What we love in a person is what already is, virtue, beauty, courage, and hence our love is self-interested and fragile. 
But God, loving what is not yet and putting faith in us, continually begets us since love is what begets. Love is what helps us emerge from our darkness and draw us to the light. And this is such a fine thing to do that God invites us to do the same. See, at Christmas, we'll probably hear Isaiah 9 quoted that those who were walking in darkness have seen a great light. And emerging from that darkness, stepping into the light, as Coretto writes, takes stepping out of a love that is self-interested and fragile. As C.S. Lewis would tell us, that's a life lived small. Break that curve. Nip the bud on that inward focus. And turn your hearts and focus again towards love and, and others. But let me tell you one reason. Why community is so hard out there. Why division is so prevalent out there. Reconciliation is so hard to find out there because we get the order wrong. Until we get reconciliation right with God. Until we have a relationship with God and have experienced his love, we're going to get horizontal reconciliation and community wrong again and again. So let's, in these moments, we're going to come back for a moment of prayer, but let's in this moment, as we close in worship, set our eyes again on God. Look up to God. Because, again, Christmas shows us he's, he's ready to come to us. He's already come. We're already loved. We're already chosen. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. As Hebrews says, he's the author and finisher of the faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Not the joy of the cross. The joy on the other side of the cross and the grave, right, where he can be Emmanuel, God with us. Meet us in moments like this, no matter what season you're in. No matter what week you came out of, no matter what you've done, he can meet us here as we draw near to him in worship. So, Jesus, we can stand as we stand tonight. Thank you that you are God with us. You are God in us. You are God working through us. But we know as desperately as we want reconciliation and revival out there, it's going to start when we first get it right with you. But, Jesus, I thank you that we don't have to try to climb some ladder, <laughs> climb some mountain to get to you. You came. You came, you tore the veil so that in moments like this, we can draw near to you and you draw near to us, as James says. The letter James, the book of the Bible. So God, we draw near to you tonight in worship, in praise, knowing that you already have a heart that is for us, that has given everything for us. You endured the cross for us for this moment. So God, I pray that we wouldn't let it go by idly. God, this Christmas season, don't let us be complacent and, and, and sit back and think, yeah, I've been here before, I've done this. God, I pray you would open our eyes to just the, the, the glory that is you in the flesh so that we can have relationship with you, the creator of the universe, who came to die while we were still sinners, still a mess. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you. We thank you that we're more than enough and we're already chosen because what you came and did is already more than enough. Christmas, the cross, the grave, we praise you for it. We thank you for it. We worship you.